Good morning. Good to see you this morning. If you have your book, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Philippians. We're starting a new series today on the book of Philippians. Finished our series on Acts this week, and today we are starting a new series on the book of Philippians. Philippians is one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. It's about joy in the midst of difficulty. I think that's a book that I know I need right now, and I suspect maybe you need as well. So if you're looking at the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then you have the go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right, so between Ephesians and Colossians, you'll find the book of Philippians. Let's pray, and we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank, you for, we thank you for the book of Philippians. I know this journey that we're going to be on between now and Christmas will be one I feel confident will be encouraging to our souls. It's a book about joy in the midst of hardship and suffering. It's a book about trusting you even when things are hard. And Lord, we need that. Uh, Father, we thank you that you've given us in your wisdom a book like Philippians to encourage us, to keep us pressing on. And this morning as we start this series, we just pray that you would speak in a powerful way through your word. Okay, we are confident that every time we open your word, you can do great things. And this morning we pray that you would. Lord, please minister to us through these opening verses in the book of Philippians. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think loneliness is a serious problem in our country. Even before the pandemic, the Surgeon General of the United States declared that we were facing, quote, an epidemic of loneliness. And that epidemic has only worsened in the last couple of years. It's now estimated that three in five adults, 60%, would describe themselves as being lonely. Roughly 80% of young adults, those ages 18 to 25, would put themselves in the same category. Even more concerningly, amongst those, that same young adult demographic, 61% would say that they are seriously lonely, meaning that they are frequently or almost always or all the time feeling alone. Now, the irony of that statistic, of course, is that young people are now seemingly more connected than ever before through social media, phones, and other technology, and yet loneliness is only increasing. What's interesting, if you go back and trace the rise of social media, since social media use has taken off, loneliness has actually increased right beside it. Perhaps there's a correlation there. There's no question that this loneliness is affecting our society in negative ways. According to a recent CDC survey, 63% of young adults are suffering significant symptoms of anxiety or depression. And again, there seems to be a link here between this anxiety and depression and loneliness. On top of that, loneliness affects our physical and mental health in a multitude of other ways as well. Some research would suggest that there's a connection between chronic loneliness and increased risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, and general frailty. In fact, the Surgeon General was recently quoted as saying that the reduction in lifespan from loneliness is similar to the reduction in lifespan caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So needless to say, loneliness is a serious problem in the United States. And I would venture to say it's probably a pretty serious problem in the church too. Now, there's not as many statistics to be able to back that up, but if 60% of the adult population in the United States regularly reports feelings of loneliness, it seems certain that many in the church would struggle also, including perhaps many in this room. And that's sobering. But here's the good news this morning. I don't think loneliness has to be the norm in the church. On the contrary, I think God has designed for us to live in community. We are meant to live life together. We are not meant to live life alone. Now, the problem is that we often neglect the way in which God has designed us to live because of busyness or life circumstances or maybe past relational hurts or misplaced priorities or maybe any one of a number of other reasons. We tend to fail to live in the type of community God has designed for us. 
And because of that, I have no doubt that loneliness is a very real issue for many in this room, including even sometimes me. But what I'm going to argue this morning is that one of the antidotes to the loneliness that pervades our culture is actually found in recovering the biblical doctrine of fellowship. Back when I was in college, one of my mentors shared an illustration with me, the wheel illustration. I'm actually going to ask Kate if he can throw that on the screen here for us. This is an illustration that perhaps you've seen before, maybe you're familiar with. The basic idea of the wheel wheel illustration is that living out the obedient Christian life involves these four components or spiritual disciplines. On the vertical spokes, you have the Word of God and prayer, the idea being that's how we vertically connect with God. The horizontal spokes, you have witnessing and fellowship. Witnessing meaning sharing with non-believers, fellowship, close friendships with fellow Christians. Now Jesus, as you'll notice, Christ is the center of the wheel. He's the hub. Without Christ in the center, everything else falls apart. Those four components or spiritual disciplines form the spokes of the wheel. And if any of them get out of proportion, for example, say that you're great at prayer but never in the Word or vice versa, or or you're great at witnessing and not fellowship, then pretty soon your wheel is going to get wobbly. Just like if you have a bike that has unequal spokes, it's going to get wonky after a while. The same thing exists in the Christian life. At least that's the idea of the illustration. Now for me personally, I'll say this. Witnessing has always been the hardest component for me. Prayer has been a struggle at times, too, and while the Word has usually been a strength, I've gone through seasons of dryness there as well. But the one component I've never really worried about is fellowship. That's always seemed like the easy part to me on the wheel. After all, I spend time with Christians. I have Christian friends. We'll eat meals together, hang out together. But the older I get and the more I read the Bible, the more I'm starting to realize that those things alone are not really Christian fellowship. As author D.A. Carson points out, we've come to think of Christian fellowship as warm friendship with believers. But that's not actually what fellowship is if you look at what the Bible teaches. As Carson argues, true Christian fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. It's a common commitment to live for Christ together and to sacrifice together in order to pursue our common goal of following Jesus. In other words, what we're saying is fellowship is not just getting together with your friends who are Christians and watching the Huskers play football. It's a unique relationship that's centered on Christ and committed to helping one another grow in Christ. And if that's our definition of fellowship, and that's the types of relationships we're talking about, I would argue those relationships in which Christ is our great priority and we're living for Christ together, I would argue those relationships are rare even in the church. And yet those are exactly the types of relationships that we need. Not only do these types of relationships guard against the loneliness that's so prevalent in our culture, more importantly, God has designed for us to live in this type of fellowship. Now, fortunately for us, the book of Philippians gives us a beautiful picture of what this type of a relationship looks like. The book of Philippians is about many things. It's a book about joy in the midst of suffering. It's a book about the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. It's a book about trusting God and living for the right things. But it's also a book about relationships. It's about the importance of unity in the church. It's about the importance of friendship and fellowship in the church. As one Bible scholar described it, the book of Philippians is primarily a letter of friendship and exhortation. And that emphasis on friendship is on full display even in the opening verses of the book So my hope this morning is this. My hope is that as we study the first 11 verses of Philippians today, that we will get a clearer picture of what true Christian fellowship looks like. But more than that, my hope is that as we study these verses, we will then have a desire to pursue this type of fellowship because the fact is, we need it. We need it desperately. All right, so if you can, please stand. If you're physically able, we're going to read Philippians 1, verses 1 to 11. 
Thank you for that illustration, Cade. Done with it. Now you can put up the verses here. Philippians 1, verses 1 to 11. The Word of God says this, standing is a simple way. By the way, we can remind ourselves this is the Word of God as such as do our reverence. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now, many of Paul's letters in the New Testament open with a similar format to what we find here in the book of Philippians. You have a greeting, a word of thankfulness, and then a prayer. And because many of Paul's letters had that similar format, I think it would be easy for us to dismiss these opening verses of Philippians as if Paul is just using some sort of boilerplate that he's copying and pasting from other letters. Okay, here's the introduction. Let's just get this out of the way. But to read Philippians in that way would be a mistake because clearly in every letter he writes, Paul is intentional in using the words that he does even in his introductory comments. Philippians is no exception to this. In these first 11 verses, there is a unique relationship that Paul has with the Philippians that differs from what we might read in other books. And as we read about his relationship with the Philippians, we're given a unique insight into the nature of that relationship. We're given a window into what true Christian fellowship looks like. And it's that fellowship that I want us to think about this morning. I want us to notice the types of things that characterize the relationship between Paul and the Philippians. Because in noticing those things, I think we'll discover that there are several marks of true Christian fellowship that were present in the relationship between Paul and the Philippians and also should be present in our lives. More specifically, there are five marks of genuine Christian fellowship that are present in this passage that I'd like for us to observe this morning and hopefully begin to think about how we might implement these in our own lives. So five marks here. Mark number one, true Christian fellowship is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. True Christian fellowship is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia, appears in one form or another six times in the book of Philippians. The first appearance is in verse 5. It's actually translated as partnership, but it's a word that's commonly translated fellowship. But the way in which the word is used in verse 5, I think, actually gives us some insight into the nature of what fellowship actually looks like. So verse 5, we read this. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now again, when we think of the word fellowship, we tend to think of a Christian buddy coming over to watch a game. Or maybe going out to lunch with a dear Christian sister. And those things might entail fellowship. But I think there's more to fellowship than just hanging out with other Christians. In fact, in the first century, the word fellowship carried much more weight When two people in the first century formed a business partnership, they were sometimes said to be forming a fellowship or a partnership. It's that sense of the word that's being conveyed in verse 5, hence the translation, partnership. Paul is talking about the partnership he enjoyed with the Philippians. 
So when Paul speaks of having fellowship, he's not just speaking of having time together. Although he's spent time with the Philippians, no doubt. Paul actually helped to start the church at Philippi all the way back in 51 or 52 AD. It's commonly believed that Philippians was wrote between 60 and 62 AD when Paul was in prison in Rome. Actually, the end of Acts that we finished last week, when Paul was in Rome for two years, that's when he wrote the book of Philippians. At least that's the commonly held belief. He started the church in Philippi about 10 years before that and spent a good amount of time there. We read about that back in Acts 16. So he'd spent time with the Philippians. But for Paul, fellowship wasn't just about spending time with fellow Christians. It was about being in partnership with them. It was about laboring towards the same end. And in this passage, it's clear the end they were laboring towards is a common love for Jesus. Notice again in verse 5, Paul gives thanks and rejoices because of their partnership in the gospel. It was the good news of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, his subsequent resurrection. This is what united Paul and the Philippians together in a common cause. Their fellowship was not based on similar hobbies. Sometimes that's how we decide who we want to be in fellowship with, who has similar hobbies. Nor was their fellowship based on similar tastes in food or clothing, or based on being in a similar line of work together, or having kids the same age. No, their fellowship was based on the foundation of Jesus Christ. When Paul thinks of why he's thankful for the Philippians, the first thing out of his mouth is their partnership in the gospel. Jesus is what brings them together. And that's obvious, not just in verse 5, but everywhere in this passage. Notice how many times Jesus makes an appearance in the first 11 verses. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he who began a good work and you will, t- will bring it to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, I yearn for you all with affection of Christ Jesus. Verse 10, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's to say nothing of verses 5 or 7, which do not mention Jesus by name, but instead refer to the gospel. And of course, the substance of the good news of the gospel is Jesus. So in this passage then, I think we can safely say this. While Paul and and the Philippians' relationship, the beauty and the depth of their relationship is being demonstrated in these 11 verses, it's clear Jesus is at the center. And that's because the foundation of Paul's fellowship with the Philippians was a common love for Christ. They both loved Jesus and the good news about Jesus. And so they partnered together in Christian fellowship. Jesus is what they talked about. Jesus is what they live for. And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense, does it not? Because we partner with people that love the same things we do. I feel pretty confident saying that I'm one of two diehard Iowa State football fans in this church body. And the other is my son, Noah. Now, my parents are visiting this weekend. They might fall in that category too, but they're not here regularly, so they don't count. Just me and Noah, probably. Now, there might be some other Iowa State fans that I'm not aware of. Maybe there are some secret Iowa State fans. Just come out in the light. It's fine. You can come on out. It's good. But I'm guessing I'm one of two diehard fans. No one follows Iowa State as closely as Noah and I do. And that's probably for the best, by the way, because being an Iowa State fan is not for the faint of heart. Now, I know being a Nebraska fan is not easy either right now, but at least you have the 1990s. There are no 1990s in Iowa State football history, just a century of misery mixed in with mediocrity. All that to say, Noah and I are pretty much alone in our love for cyclone football, but you know what we talk a lot about on Saturdays in the fall? Iowa State football. For better or for worse, we have a common love, and this draws us together. It gives us something to talk about. It gives us 
a sense of purpose on Saturdays. We're watching and we're reliving things. We're talking about, what about that player? What did they do there? But listen, if that's the way we interact about something as pointless as Iowa State football, how much more should we as Christians be united together by the good news of Jesus Christ? How much more should we be talking about Christ on a regular basis? How much more should Christ be at the center of everything we do? After all, not only did Jesus die on the cross for our sins, but three days later he rose from the dead. And if we trust in him, and if he's given us new life, then we have a purpose and we have a future inheritance that can never be taken from us. How can that not be at the center of our Christian friendships? I'm always amazed when I gather together with other Christians and we're together for several hours and we never talk about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that to be critical of other people because I'm just as guilty as anyone. I can talk about weather or sports or my kids like anyone else can. But if Jesus is the most important part of our life, and if the same is true for other Christians, doesn't it make sense that Jesus would be at the forefront of our relationships? And if we love Jesus, we want others to know about him. Doesn't it make sense that we would partner in advancing the good news of Jesus? As evidenced by the relationship between Paul and the Philippians, true Christian fellowship is built on the foundation of knowing Jesus. So that's one mark of genuine Christian fellowship. Here's the second. True Christian fellowship is evidenced by gratitude and mutual encouragement in the gospel. Notice the way in which Paul speaks of the Philippians, verses 3 to 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now maybe it's just a function of the day and age we live in. Maybe it's a function of living in a social media world. But it seems to me that we tend to be heavy on criticism and light on encouragement. In fact, even when we think about good things about others, we sometimes don't say them because we don't want to puff them up. But that's not the way Paul operated. In the opening verses of Philippians, he's filled with gratitude and encouragement for the Philippians, and he expresses it. He lets the Philippians know he's grateful for them. He thanks God for them. He even tells them how confident he is God is going to keep doing a good work in them. And to be clear, this encouragement went both ways. It was a two-way street. In verse 7, Paul talks about the Philippians were partners in grace with him in his imprisonment and in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. In other words, they were encouraging him too. So Paul encourages the Philippians. The Philippians encourage him. This is the way it should be in the body of Christ. In the body of Christ, we should not be heavy on criticism and light on encouragement. Rather, that ratio should be reversed. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for hard conversations or telling hard truths. Of course there is. What I'm saying, though, is we should be more prone to encourage than we should to criticize. Now, when I talk about encouragement, I'm not talking about flattery or empty praise here. I'm talking about genuine encouragement in which we see God's grace at work in someone's life and we point it out as a way of encouraging them in their faith in Jesus Christ. So I wonder, how often are we actually doing this? Husbands, when was the last time you encouraged your wife specifically with something you see at work in her life that God is clearly doing and you gave thanks to God for her? Wives, when was the last time you specifically said something like that to your husbands? Moms, dads, do you make a habit of pointing out areas of grace in your kids' lives or do you spend far more time correcting? Kids, to switch the situation for you, do you ever encourage your parents 
and tell them how you see God's gifts at work in them? Or instead, are you always thinking about things that you wish they would do differently? It's easy to look at the world around us and see things that are wrong. And it's easy to look at the people around us, even Christians, and see all of their flaws and warts too. But genuine Christian fellowship should be marked by gratitude and encouragement. Now the challenge is, we're not very good at this. In fact, I'm a little bit afraid that if we started talking like Paul did in verses 3 to 6, some people around us would accuse us of being flatterers and phony balonies. By the way, I don't know if that's a technical term, but it really rolls off the tongue, a phony baloney. But my point here is, is this in verses 3 to 6. I think if we talk like Paul did, I think some people would think, oh, they're trying to get something from me. Oh, they're just trying to work me over. But the fact that we think like that reveals something about us. Namely, the fact that we struggle to express gratitude and thankfulness like this shows us that we have a long ways to go in coming closer to the biblical norm for what it looks like to have fellowship. We might listen to Paul's language in verses 3 to 6 and think, well, he's just being effusive and over the top. But if that's how we're thinking, the issue is with us, not with Paul. He's being inspired by the Holy Spirit here, and he wants to give genuine encouragement and genuine gratitude for the Philippians. This may be hard for us, but this is an area we need to grow in because true Christian fellowship is evidenced by gratitude and mutual encouragement in the gospel. Along the same lines, mark number three now, true Christian fellowship is characterized by genuine affection. Check out the language of verses seven and eight. Verse seven, Paul says this, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's language probably seems a little out of place for us because we don't talk like this. We're Midwesterners. That would be weird, right? We think that people are going to have to earn our compliments. They're going to have to really demonstrate something amazing if we were to ever talk like this. But that's not the way Paul thought. Paul was quick to demonstrate his gratitude and his encouragement, but also his affection. He loved his fellow Christians because they are fellow members of the body of Christ. They are fellow sons and daughters of the King. Paul loved the body. And get this, he loved all of the body. In fact, I'm going to read verses 7 and 8 again. I want you to listen how many times he says the word all. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Right? It's one thing to be affectionate towards the people in the body of Christ that we have the most in common with. But it's another thing to be able to genuinely say, as Paul does here, I have affection for all of you. So here's a question. Can you still love the person in the body of Christ who has different political views than you do? Can you still love the person in the body of Christ who maybe has a different view on what kids' schooling should look like? Can you still love the person in the body of Christ who has a different idea of what it looks like to, to pursue justice in a biblical way? Can you love the person in the body of Christ who smells funny or dresses funny or maybe says things that are just out of left field sometimes? It's one thing to love the person that you agree with, on everything. It's another thing to love the entire body of Christ. But for Paul, he is very clear. His feelings of affections are not just for some. 
in the body at Philippi, it's for all the Christians. But again, this is what true fellowship looks like. It's marked by genuine affection for the entire body of Christ. Mark number four, true Christian fellowship is forward-looking. Forward-looking. Notice that twice as Paul is discussing his relationship with the Philippians, that he mentions the day of Christ. Verse six, he says this, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a reference to the day when Jesus returns. Verse 10, he says this, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So here's a reality that I think we really don't like to admit. All of us are getting older. When I came back from sabbatical, I had a few people tell me the first week, it seems like you have more gray hair than when you left. Now, I'm not sure how to take that, but it's probably true. Because unfortunately, going on sabbatical does not slow down the aging process. It's true, when I came back, I was three months older than when I left. And sometimes when I look in the mirror, or in particular when I'm getting a haircut, and I look down at the hair on the ground, I think, man, I am getting old. And it's just discouraging. But I'll say this, that's not the way my wife thinks about aging. Her response on every birthday, and she says this with a smile on her face and with the utmost sincerity, she says, I'm just one year closer to being with Jesus. Now, on my birthday, I do not think that way. I think, I'm just old. I'm probably going to hurt more this year. I'm probably going to be in more pain. But that's not the way she looks at it. Every time she thinks about getting older, she thinks about being a day closer to being with Jesus. And while that thinking seems odd to me, and if I'm honest, sometimes annoying, I just want to feel bad about my age rather than excited about it. I have to admit, her way of thinking is more biblical than mine. In the scriptures, there's a consistent focus on being ready for the return of Christ and being joyful about the return of Christ. And given that reality, it only makes sense that our Christian friendships would be marked by discussion about the return of Christ as well. But again, I would just ask the question, how often does this happen? When was the last time you sat down with a fellow Christian and talked about the realities of Christ's return? When was the last time you sat down with your kids and you had an excited conversation about what it will be like when Jesus comes back? When was the last time you prayed for a brother or sister in Christ that they would be found blameless at the return of Christ as Paul prays here? Now, I think one of the challenges of living in America in 2022 is we have so many things at our fingertips and we have so many resources that the idea of living in eternity with Christ just doesn't excite us because we kind of like it here. But that says more about us than it does about the actual excitement of being with Christ forever. Because as Paul will tell us later on in the book of Philippians, it would be far better for Christians to die and be with Christ than to remain here. Now, he goes on to say it may be necessary that we stay here so we can share Christ, but it is better to be with Christ. And we need to encourage one another and remind one another of this reality. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the world to come. True Christian fellowship is forward-looking. It's forward-looking. We're pointing one another to the hope of glory. But lastly, the fifth mark is simply this. True Christian fellowship is saturated by gospel-centered prayers. From the very beginning of the passage, it's clear that one of the marks of Paul's relationship with his Philippians brothers and sisters was he prayed for them. Verses 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine. For you all making my prayer with joy. Paul prayed for the Philippians. In verses 9 to 11, the content of his prayer comes into focus. This is what he prayed. Verse 9, It is my prayer that your love may abound 
more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this is what Paul prays for the Philippians. He prays that their love, presumably for Christ and others, would grow more and more. He prays that they would grow in knowledge and wisdom so they would approve what is excellent and thus be ready for the day of Christ. He prays that they would bear the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ and thus bring glory and honor to God. That's his prayer list. Now again, I would just ask the question, do you ever pray in that way? Do you pray for your friends like that? Do you pray for your spouse like that? Do you pray for your kids like that? Do you pray for your parents like that? Do you pray that way for yourself? I've recently tried to get in the habit of asking people more often, how can I be praying for you? And most of the time, the response I get in return is something related to a physical need. We'll pray for this health need, or, or pray for my aunt who's sick, or pray for my kid who's making bad choices. And to be absolutely clear, there is nothing wrong with any of those prayer requests. Nothing at all. In fact, we are to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And that means praying for our health, our sick grandma, the kid who's gone wayward. It's right and good to pray for those things. But I do wonder if perhaps we've lost sight of praying for things that matter most. Is it more important that we pray for physical health or that we pray we're ready for the return of Christ? Is it more important that we pray our kids don't get in trouble or more important that we pray they see the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus? Now hear me clearly, I'm not arguing for an either-or proposition here. I'm not saying we should either pray for gospel things or physical things. No, we should pray for both. We should pray for both. Let me be clear on that. But I suspect we probably are more prone to neglect gospel-centered prayers than we are physical ones. But listen, our friends and family members need our gospel-infused prayers. And frankly, we need people praying for us in that way too. Prayer is a powerful weapon that we often neglect. I know we have a hard time believing this, but the best thing we can do for people we love is pray for them. I was just having a discussion with a friend this week. We were talking about how hard it is to actually believe that's true, but it is. Sometimes we feel like when we're praying, we're like, well, I wish I could just do more. No, praying is a great start. In fact, it's the most important thing you can do. But are we praying in gospel-infused ways? Yes, we should pray for our friends and family members and their physical needs, but we should also pray they would grow in their love for Jesus and for others. We should pray that they would grow in wisdom so they would approve what's excellent and be ready for the return of Christ. We should pray that they would bear fruit for Christ and for the glory of God. True Christian fellowship should be marked by gospel-centered prayers. Now, having said all that, having walked through these various marks of genuine Christian fellowship, the genuine fellowship is built on the foundation of Christ, evidenced by gratitude and mutual encouragement in the gospel, marked by affection, forward-looking, saturated by gospel-centered prayers. My question this morning to kind of finish this off is simply this. Do you have this type of fellowship in your life? As you think about Paul's relationship with the Philippians, do you read this and think, oh yeah, I have these types of friendships? If so, let me say this. Praise God. Praise God and keep doing what you're doing. Because the type of fellowship that Paul describes here in Philippians 1 is rare. But if you don't have that type of fellowship, let me just ask a few follow-up questions. First, and this is the most important one, is Christ your greatest passion? I don't mean that theoretically, by the way. I don't mean if your pastor asked you, what are you most passionate about? Everyone would say, well, Jesus. No, I'm saying, in reality, what are you most passionate about? What is it that drives the way you spend your time, your money, your thoughts? What is it you're most passionate about? 
If true Christian fellowship is built first and foremost on the foundation of Christ, it will be impossible to have this type of fellowship if Christ is not your foundation. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and the idea of having this type of fellowship that we've described today intrigues you, let me encourage you first to consider the claims of Christ. To have true Christian fellowship means first having fellowship with God. And that is only possible through Jesus' death on the cross in which he took the punishment for our sin and was willing to give us his righteousness. So listen, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, first of all, we're glad you're here. We're really glad you're here. But I would plead with you gently to turn to Jesus Christ. There's no way you can have fellowship with God by being a good person or going to church or doing enough good things. God is too holy. The only way we can be right with God is through Jesus' work on the cross, and so turn to him. Now, it's also possible that you're here and you turned to Christ a long time ago, but you've kind of lost your way. You don't have this type of fellowship that we see here in Philippians 1 because you're not as passionate about Christ as you once were. And if that's the case, let me encourage you this morning. It's not too late. Remember your first love. Repent and come back, and then look for others who want to pursue Christ with you. Which leads to the second follow-up question in terms of do we have this type of fellowship? Are you intentionally seeking to build relationships that look like what we see here in Philippians 1? Let's be clear. The type of fellowship that Paul describes in Philippians 1 takes work. It takes intentionality. And so the question is, are you willing to put in that work? And are you willing to be intentional? I think some of us want the benefits of Christian fellowship, but we don't want to do the work of making it happen. We don't want to get messy in relationships. We don't want to give up our time. We don't want to inconvenience our lives. But to think in that way is like saying, well, I want to run a marathon. I just never want to train. Well, yeah, you could try it, but that's not very realistic. Some of us need to make a commitment today. I'm going to intentionally seek out relationships that are built on the foundation of Christ because I want what's described in Philippians 1. But even still... The type of fellowship that's described here in Philippians 1 is a work of God. And so the most important question is this. Are you praying for this type of fellowship in our body? And are you praying for it in your own life? And are you praying for your friends like Paul prayed for his? If there's anything I've learned in the last couple of years, and even especially in the last couple of months, is this. Undertaking any endeavor without prayer is an exercise in futility. That's not to say you can't accomplish things apart from prayer. In fact, there are many non-Christians who have accomplished great things, finding cures for diseases and on and on. But what I'm saying is this, anything that really matters in the end, meaning that will echo into all of eternity, cannot be accomplished apart from prayer. So will you pray for true Christian fellowship? Will you pray for your friends and family members like Paul prayed for his? Listen, the world we live in is lonely. I suspect it's only going to get worse. As we dive more and more into the technological world with virtual reality, I suspect that real loneliness will only increase also. But here's the good news this morning. We have an antidote. We have the opportunity to live in genuine Christian fellowship with other believers. Fellowship that is built on the foundation of Christ, evidenced by gratitude and mutual encouragement, marked by genuine affection, forward-looking, saturated with gospel-centered prayers. That type of fellowship, it Fellowship is not normal, but it is awesome. And I pray that as a church, we would collectively say, that's what we want to look like. And then by the grace of God, I pray that it would happen for the good of our souls 
and for the glory of our great God. Let's pray this morning. God, we do pray that we would be the type of church that could earnestly say, yes, Philippians 1, 1 to 11, that's what our church is like. And I pray that we would be the type of people who could say, yes, Philippians 1, 1 to 11, that's what my fellowship with other Christians looks like too. That we could say, like Paul does, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. That we could say, like Paul does, I've been praying for you with great joy, thinking about you because of your partnership in the gospel. And that we would pray these gospel-centered prayers because we want our friends and family members and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to know the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray Philippians 1, 1 to 11 would describe our church body. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.